Here we go once again, Monday night, time for Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. Uh, Mike Balsamo, great show on tap for you tonight. Ira's in studio, didn't have the busiest week, but and normally when you stay in Florida, you head to Tampa. You know, you're like a celebrity at Raymond James, but you were uh, here at um, at uh, Miami Dolphins game. How about I went to a Miami Dolphins game and actually saw Miami Dolphin fans? It was pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, the Carolina Panthers do not have that traveling group of fans that come to the games, and but I went down there for the game, and it was. Uh, Truly amazing to see the Dolphins and, and just all their form and their offenses and stuff like that. So it was good to go down to the game. And I'll tell you what, it's easier now. I think I figured this out, how to go down on, you know, take 95, the turnpike. You get off there at 2X and you go right in. The mistake that I think a lot of people make is they go into the orange lot. And you don't want to go in the orange lot. You're fighting through traffic. Fighting. You just go in the yellow lot. You're on the right on the left. You park right there. You can just pull in. And when they try to push you somewhere, just, just point where the exit is. Park your car there. Just walk a little bit further. You're in the stadium. Boom, you're there. And the game's over. I just pulled right out. I was like going to high school. I go to high school football games. Probably would take me longer to get in and out. <laughs> no, what you said is true. Granted, it's Carolina. They don't have the you know biggest national fan base, but I was at a local sports bar and wall-to-wall Dolphins fans going nuts the entire game. Dolphins fever and mania is back in South Florida, and it's exciting for us. I mean, there's nothing that's making me think this team can't go to the Super Bowl. So it's it's an exciting time to be a Dolphins fan. Yeah, it's great, and it was it was good to be there. And, and just I think it was cool for me because I, I now that they I saw last last game was there was they, they were playing Aaron Rodgers. That was mm-hmm. when they played Green Bay, and it's sort of like the wheels were falling off the team a little bit. Now you're seeing them with all their full power and Hill running around and the, everything was crazy with Waddle and Hill. I love watching their offense and you're just it's just wondering why other teams are not modeling now you don't players they don't have hill waddle and mostart and they're all the tua but i just can't believe other teams don't do what they do because they are it's pretty amazing yeah and we'll, we'll talk more about uh, what they did how that game went now uh, here coming up on ira on sports you can follow ira across social media at ira on sports great interview coming up at 7 35 um we, we taped this so so we already know what, what's going to be said but carlos boozer is coming on um what he has to say is really, he was a fantastic interview. A lot of times when you're interviewing an athlete, you really don't know what you're going to get. But Carlos Boozer is not only you know uh, vulnerable with himself, he has a great story to tell. Amazing story. I mean, he won a national championship at Duke basketball. He also was in the NBA for Utah and Chicago, one star team, all two-time all-star. Uh, really, one of these players, I made like $200 million playing basketball his whole life. But uh, it was it's a great, the book is great. It was a great interview, at even if you're not a basketball Basketball fan, listen to it. It's an amazing story uh, about his life and, you know, the fact that he grew up in D.C. and then moved to Alaska and did everything. And it's pretty amazing. Yeah, no, it's a great interview. We'll talk to Carlos Boozer at 735 here on Iron Sports. So, Ira, yesterday, one of those weeks that had, you know, uh, survivor pool people <laughs> dropping left and right. It was another, week, you know, two of the best teams in the league lost. Uh, the Another top team almost lost. And it really is showing. It's any given Sunday. And I love to see the parody in the league. It's the parody, and also like I, I watch, I listen to Colin Coward a lot, and he's all, oh, this league is only offense, it's only offense, it's only offense, and if you watch these games, the d- defense is taking over these yeah. games constantly. Besides Miami, besides Miami, <laughs> and and you look at this, and even the Chiefs, they're winning because they're deep. I mean, they're losing because of Mahomes, but also because, and he's saying, look, our defense he's is carrying his us. worst statistical year. <laughs> he says the defense is carrying, but all these games, I mean, it's every game is 1917, 2014, and you're seeing those guys when the Eagles went down seven times last the last. 
last seven possessions they had, they didn't score a point. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the, the how the NFL is switching, that you really got to have this strong defense and be able to take advantage of offensive opportunities. But the fact that these defense, it's, it's good. I, I don't know if I remember that one time we did a show a few years ago when the uh, Rams were playing the Chiefs and it was we knew the score was going to be like 55, 50, and mm -hmm. it was 55, that type of thing. I like the fact that the defense is, that there's some, you're not going to score every single time you get the ball. Yeah, especially looking at you guys in the AFC North. I mean, the, the Browns now have to be considered one of the best defenses in the league. You guys have to play them twice. Steelers always have a good D. Ravens defense. Yeah, Ravens always have a good D. I mean, this, these are... These are real things. To hold San Francisco the way the Browns did yesterday, even I know there's injuries, Brock Purdy looked like Mr. Irrelevant yesterday. <laughs> we'll talk all about it, though. Miami and Carolina, let's start there. You were there, and you were impressed with just some of the uh, concepts that they're coming up with that are very, very difficult for defenses to pick up on. So this is when you, I'm, I'm trying to take pictures of Tua before the game, so, you know, in the game. And when he has the ball, I compare him to Magic Johnson. Because Magic Johnson was 6'8 as a point guard, and he would hide the ball. Like, you're like, how do you hide the ball? Like, Steph Curry, you can see with the quick hands and everything. Magic's hands weren't so quick, but they were long. But he was very deceptive. He looked one way, the, the no-look passes, hiding but putting the ball behind his back. Tua, when they run these plays, Tua moves the ball. It's hard on TV not to see it, but when you're in person, and the defense, there's times where defense is, like, so afraid. To, like, he has the ball. Ball, but they don't know he has the ball mm -hmm. because he's just holding it certain ways. And I love how they use motion. They have, like, on some plays, they're running. So Hill is running to the side, and he's running. You can't, of course, run like Canadian football straight ahead. But he's, when he's running, and he's then, he's like, you know, 10 miles an hour as he's running across the field. But then he turns up and makes that left. It's like going to the Olympics and having, like, the 100-yard dash and having someone having a head start. That's how with the, they're using the Unless some teams don't use motion hardly, like Steelers don't use motion <laughs> hardly at all. And I love the misdirection they have. Like, there was a play where Tua went and he looked like he was going to throw it to Waddle because Waddle's coming from the right side and then Hill is running from the left and he just turns and throws it to Hill. Like, what are defense supposed to do? So many times the Carolina defenders, I think just, they were a step slow and then when the Dolphins are like a two steps faster because they run 22 miles an hour, it's hard. That's why they're so open. And there was this one play where I'm like, I'm following Tua and then he throws the ball in there and I'm like, is that going to go to Hill? And Hill breaks and he's wide open. And one last thing what I think what the Dolphins do is amazing is that unlike other teams, like if a player is not in the pattern they're like they're just you know to go you know try 50 percent effort you know i'm not going to throw it to him Tyreek Hill and Waddle, they run faster when they don't have the ball. Mm -hmm. Like that, when, when the play is going to be a run. So it's so hard. Defenses are confused. Most hard. If he hits a pass play, goes look like he's he fakes like he has the ball. Like they do a draw, like a like a fake to him, and he looks like he has the ball. So defenses are like, what is going on? They're so confused. And they're they don't get procedure penalties. This team is it's a well-oiled machine. And Mike McDaniel's just great. I mean, he sits there, his outfit, he wore what capri pants. <laughs> he looks like he's like there's a there's a cookout at the beach later at the night he's ready to head to i mean you just stand there there's they're calm cool they get down 14 nothing whatever but it was it was that type i was so impressed with being down 14 nothing in the game the whole first quarter they had like a yard they were terrible and then just to think but no one was like nervous like you're like they'll score and they score 35 straight points and they'll stop carolina and you're worried about carolina the thing is they went on second they went on a fourth down on a fake punt and when they didn't get it there was a delay for it's like 10 minutes mm -hmm. you're watching on tv it was like this 10 50 minute delay it seems like and then you know what's so funny is that Tua playing on Alabama and all these players who have played on Alabama like I think he knows like it, you like they were all having a good old talk everyone's talking in that old delay and then even after the game too, there's so many Bama players that, that Tua's friends with like everyone all the Bama players you can have like a reunion every time the Alabama or Georgia or the SEC teams play mm -hmm. and that was fun but I'm just so impressed now I know this was an easy win it was
North Carolina. And uh, Bryce Young, one last point, is I, I he looked good the first two possessions, and he's a very accurate passer, and I just don't know. We heard today what Frank Wright said, I'm not calling plays anymore. Yeah. So it, I think their play calling, like you you look at the Bryce Young and you're saying, what would he look in this offense? Like if you took Tua— There's put, not many weapons in Carolina. <laughs> no weapons. If you put Tua on Carolina and put Bryce Young on Miami, like what would the change? Both Alabama quarterbacks, what would, what would happen? One thing that you said that stands out to me is in the day and age of— Diva receivers, you know, if Stephon Diggs only gets four targets in a game, he's complaining. Uh, Jamar Chase just came out. I'm 7-11. I'm always open. Tyreek Hill doesn't seem to be. He talks to the media. He's He's got a big personality. But when they run for 400 yards and he doesn't have the, the stat line, he's not complaining. When Waddle gets 200 yards and two touchdowns and he only gets a couple of looks, hey, if we won by two touchdowns, that's all I care about. They really bought into the system. And He's, you know, he's he's a character, but he doesn't let that affect the team like you can see with some of these diva receivers. Waddle and Hill are amazing. They're so small that you think of like good big wide receivers when you think about the Steelers, you know, like a Heinz Ward who was like a blocking wide mm. receiver and does other things. They don't, how can they block? They're so small, but they're able to create so much without even a good tight end, without everything. It is amazing how, but you're right. He'll be, I think the running the roots and running it hard and, and get, is, that's one of the key things that both of them, but you're right. They are, and the team is so, they are just together. They they know the fact they don't get these penalties, the procedures. I mean, they're running. A, everyone's going all different directions. Like they start running the plays. There was one play, and Hill's like running the opposite direction. Like why is he running like there? <laughs> and if you're a defense, you're like what is he doing? Like it's like McDaniel just sits there like a magic, a mad scientist, and like figures out all these crazy things, and it works. And you're wondering why are other teams not doing this? It's, that's where I you know I was I was I was impressed with that. Yeah, uh, Jalen Ramsey supposedly coming back after the bye. Devin Hn is uh, coming back around the same time. So. I think it's Super Bowl or bust here for Miami Dolphins fans. Exciting stuff in South Florida. San Francisco and Cleveland. You know, watching San Francisco for the first five weeks, I'm looking at it like, this team could go undefeated. This, How is anyone going to stop them? Obviously, injuries are, are a big deal, and we saw Debo Samuel um, go out, uh, Christian McCaffrey go out. But Cleveland played a good game here with a backup quarterback. Didn't even have Deshaun Watson. They played defense the entire game. Brock Purdy had the worst start of his career by a, a mile. And sure enough, one of the bigger upsets you're going to see this year. It was one of those games where now I was I only saw the end of it because I came back. I was at the Dolphin game, so I come back. And, of course, all the Dolphin fans were excited when Super loses because the 72 yeah. is undefeated season, so they're, they're cheering. But when you look at the stats and look at what happened in the game, you know, San Francisco seemed to have this game at, you know, at 17-10. They, it's like they had it under control. Then they let, you know, the Browns go down, kick the field goals. P.J. Walker was in. They didn't have um, a quarterback, Sean, Deshaun yeah. Watson, at quarterback. And it's just, it's like it was a mess of a game. And, and San Francisco let them hang in there. Now they lost, of course, Samuel McCafferty. But then, you know, San Francisco, I got to give Purdy credit, though. That last drive, they said, well, well he's behind. He'll never do anything. They had a great drive. Yeah, and, he looked great. And, and Moody had a 41-yard field goal to win the game. And it's 80, I think the percent is 80% from 41, and he missed it. And, yeah. I, you know, I don't know. They to get they drafted Moody. I saw Moody at Michigan miss some big shot, big kicks. I don't know if he's the best, but that was, uh, I think that was a bad miss. And that was, a, you know, they could have been undefeated. But I think he did what he was supposed to do to get down there. Yeah, no, he, had, he was great on the final drive. His stats going into that were like 9 of 21 for 80 yards, you know, going into that final drive. Didn't look good. The, the future is still bright for San Francisco. Definitely, I don't think anybody's turning the page on them. Eagles and Jets. This is another one. This one was almost more shocking to me because I feel like at least I just don't trust Zach Wilson at all. So to see the Eagles who, you know, last year they were kind of like the Dolphins where it was just like, how do you defend these guys? This year they look pretty, 
mundane on offense. They're, they're out of sync a little bit. I don't know if it's losing the offensive coordinator, Shane Steichen, but congratulations to the Jets. I mean, they're proving that they're not going to be an easy out, even with a quarterback that may not be very good. It, I think the same thing in the Bills game. What happens is that you can't give the Jets are offensively challenged. But don't give them the ball. Don't turn over the ball and give them these plays like Josh Allen did. And then Jalen Hurts was just inexplicable with, with three interceptions. Uh, the worst game I've, I've seen Jalen Hurts play, I don't know, it like, seems like two years since he lost to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers a couple years ago in the playoffs. But still, they were up 49 at halftime. Then they went seven drives without scoring in the second half. They were up 14-12, kicking a field goal. Jake Elliott, who's on my fantasy team, misses an easy field goal. So they missed that. They still get the ball back. And then Hurts that interception with a minute 50 to go to throw an interception, letting the Jets return at 45 yards. Now, that was interesting. What they did was they let him score a touchdown, giving Eagles a chance to get the ball, and then they couldn't move it down. Just amazing. Bad performance all around. But if Hurts doesn't that interception was terrible. You can't throw an interception with a minute 50 to go and virtually almost a pick six to have that go down there. No, it's I don't think things are great in Philly right now. I think if you're an Eagles fan, even before this loss, you're thinking, you know, we're playing great. We're, we're winning games. We're not playing great. And that's this is not a Super Bowl team to me right now. I, I would take Dallas over that maybe. No, Even no, I don't know. I, I know it sounds crazy, but Dallas's defense is going to show up. The rest of the offense, I don't know. But right now, I think if I had to go head to head, I would take Dallas over. Philly. Well, the Eagles have been running the ball so well, and they could. They got it. They only ran for 80 yards the whole game. They, they just got away from the running game, and I felt like you know it was like they got away from the running game. And the AJ Brown situation. Remember four weeks ago, AJ Brown complained in a game, "I'm not getting the ball enough. This is terrible." But the last four games, he's got the you know 100 yards in four straight games. I think it's an Eagles record. But again, Devontae Smith is not getting involved. Now the offense is just throw it to AJ Brown, and I saw that with the Steelers when when Antonio. Brown would complain, and I think that's when Ben was like starting to force it to Antonio yeah. Brown, and that's where you start making mistakes. I think some of this is like, I, where's AJ? I got to keep AJ. If you're running an offense, and you said this about Tyreek Hill, when you run an offense, you're like, I have to keep my receivers happy. That's not a way to run an mm-hmm. offense. This is not, you know, you got to just try to get the best play open, and I think that's what's hurting Hurts. Is he's just like, okay, I'm going to keep AJ healthy, happy, but in the end, their offense stinks. This is seven sixteen. This is Ira on Sports True Oldies Channel at seven thirty five. Former NBA All Star. Carlos Boozer will join us. Giants and Bills. This was a night game, and me as a Giants fan, I was ready for 45-6 to type of game. Wasn't the case. And I don't know if it was the Giants stepping up or the um, Bills stepping down, but I think it's more of the latter. The the Bills have shown this year that they can be kind of Jekyll and Hyde on which team you're going to get, and I think we got the the bad version last night. Yeah, I mean, they did. I mean, Saquon Barkley, people said, could he play? Ran the ball 24 times. Had some great runs there in the second half, but the fact that the Giants were up 6-0, and then, of course, everyone talks about Tyrod Taylor at the end of the first half because Daniel Jones was out with the injury. Tyler Taylor has a chance to go, and the elite kick a field goal to go 9-0, and they run a play. They don't have times left, and people are running play, yes. They can't stop the clock. You know, and then Brian Dave though, but I'll say this about Dable though. You can't just start. Look, Tyra Taylor knows what happened. He's a veteran. You know, I don't know. I think Brian Dable throwing a fit on the sideline was not a good form. I just don't think that's right. Like, don't stop. We know it's a bad play. We know what happened. It's not the first time I've ever seen someone not have the play, you know, time down with that. Um, but I felt like, you know, the Giants, the, the, I think the Bills uh, were at the end of the game when they could not, you know, they, they missed a field goal. They couldn't run the clock out. Giants come down there and then they had their chance. And then the question is, was Waller interfered with or not interfered? I think they called the first interference penalty they got the one and then they're not going to call Definitely a second two one pis in a row yeah you're not going to that's one. what yeah. and then the, you know the collinsworth everyone's like oh they you know, could have been not been but they're not going to call two personal uh, you know pass interference penalties in a row well, the, the biggest story to me is how well the giants line held up 
Buffalo is supposed to be a team that gets after the quarterback, causes disruptions. Andrew Thomas, their best lineman's out. They kept Justin Pugh off the streets into left guard. He ends up getting moved to tackle when the left tackle gets hurt. They weren't able to get to Tyrod Taylor much at all. Tyrod Taylor looked like a better quarterback than Daniel Jones. And that, you made a great point there because that's one thing they're saying about Daniel Jones is that, oh, look, your offensive line is terrible. But they're saying Daniel Jones like runs in to get sacks. Yeah. Like, he's <laughs> like, like, where can I get sacked? Tyrod Taylor is a veteran. You know, we've had him. He was down in Miami. He's been everywhere. It seems like almost every single team. But it seemed like he knew how to avoid it. Whereas it seems like that's what Daniel Jones, with all the sacks he gets, he's too busy complaining. Almost, you know what, Caleb Williams for the USC was that like that. He was like, okay, your offensive line is terrible. Well, Work around it. Don't just complain to say, oh, look, I got sacked by offensive line. Don't use that as an excuse. You work around the fact your offensive line is going to struggle and move in certain areas. I got to admit, Ira, um, I guess it was two years ago when Minshew Mania hit. I was all in on Gardner Minshew. I thought he was the coolest guy. Still think he's really cool, but he's got to be a little bit more careful with the ball. He was sloppy yesterday. Jacksonville looks good. And Indy, I mean, we don't know if Anthony Richardson's out for the season now. Things could be over before they started. Well, I think Jacksonville being that England, they spent a whole week and bonded there. They played, they didn't come back when they played over there and played two straight weeks. They're four and two now. And Trevor Lawrence, I, they said it's the injury is probably not so bad, but he's looking great. And this is just, look, I've all, Jacksonville leads the NFL with 15 takeaways. And there was like about a month ago, we're like, we're real nervous. Like when's Jacksonville going to show up? And they have shown up. They look great. They look like the team that I thought they were going to be. Lions are a team that is so interesting and they're just fun to watch Amon Ross St. Brown out last week comes back you would have no clue that he was that he was ever injured Jared Goff puts the ball where it, where it needs to be David Montgomery injured in this game we don't know how long he's going to be out for Jameer Gibbs was already sitting out for this game the run game might slow him down a little bit but this is a team that could win some games in the playoffs Jared Goff had 353 yards had two touchdowns no interceptions I mean, if his name was not Jared Goff, I think he'd be at, like leading the MVP candidate with Tua. I mean, it's unbelievable how well he's been playing. And the Lions at 5-1, and one, sneaky 5-1, and one, but they're just playing with great defense. The Tampa's offense had looked great, and they stopped them, and they were able to score these points. And I think, you know, when they made that trade for Goff instead of in the, for Stafford, and they got picks with it, yep. which they used, I mean, that it was a great trade, great everything for them. And, of course, the Rams got Stafford and won the Super Bowl. But the fact is that Dan Cable comes in and, like, oh, he's not smart. He doesn't know what He's doing. They had the bad first year. I give the Lions credit. They didn't fire him after the first year when people said, oh, he's won one game. He's terrible. He's awful. Stayed with him. Stayed the course. And look at the Lions now 5-1 and one and looking great. He's a coach like McDaniel where these guys play hard for him every week, every snap. Congratulations to them, though. For The defense was 30th in the league last year. They couldn't stop anybody. They turned it around really quick with some good draft picks. So uh, good job to the Lions. The Tampa is only still 3-2, and two, so they're not so bad. Like they're, yeah, they're just not a terrible team. No, the Tampa's in that, in that division with the Atlanta and New Orleans, which everyone seems to be having trouble. I think they still have, you know, they could still easily win this, not easily, but they could battle to win that division. There was a lot of worry, I think, among Cincinnati Bengals fans and Joe Burrow fantasy owners after a month, but he's turning things around, and Cincinnati is once again looking like a team. They didn't blow out Seattle, but we know Seattle's a pretty good team as well, but Joe Burrow seems to be getting back on you track. Know, I, I, we're not covering all the games, we're just covering a few. The reason why I wanted to mention that game is because I didn't want to say, talk about Cincinnati when this looks like a team that, you know, could be playing in the Super Bowl with AFC. They're 3-3. Three and three. The record doesn't mean anything really at this point because they are starting to play really well. And if Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase are on target, then this is a team that is definitely, you know, one of those, you know, they're going to be in a shootout with Kansas City and Miami and these other teams, and they Played well, and their their defense is actually a little better this year than it had been in the past. They're keeping it in the games, but no, I think Cincinnati. I'm looking at Taxville and Cincinnati, two teams that look bad at the beginning of the year, but are really coming on now. New England and and Vegas, and this was a game, Ira, that everyone thought was going to be ugly. We know that the Patriots have been flailing. Not sure what's going on with with Josh McDaniels and how things are working out in in Vegas. And it was an ugly game, but man, it looks like it's really starting to pass Bill Belichick by now. 
Well, you, you wonder with all these great, I'm going to watch college football. We're going to jump to college football in a second. And you look at all these great quarterbacks. Mac Jones is not the quarterback for this team. But you're just so wondering, like, if some of these great quarterbacks come out, what would happen with, with the Patriots? But it was it was a mess. And losing to McDaniels, losing to Garoppolo, and all the other with the New England thing. It was just, he threw his threw the iPad on the ground. Everything was a mess. But Microsoft Surface, or whatever they want to call it, not an <laughs> iPad. But, no, bad loss. And I just you just wondered how New England's ever going to win. Like, they're going to be, like, you know, Three and fourteen this year. Yeah, they're one of the five worst teams in the league. Every week you could make a case that they're going to lose. <laughs> Tonight, Dallas and the Chargers. I keep hearing that a lot of money is coming in on the Chargers. I really like Dallas tonight. I and I like I said, I, I think they're playing better than Philly right now, or could beat Philly. Um, I don't know. What are you thinking for tonight's game? I'm going to say Chargers. I I I'm, I think Justin Herbert is phenomenal. I think he's going to be great, and I think that I think you're, I'm looking for the Chargers defense to step up finally, which they've sort of underperformed all year. I think Chargers defense steps up. I think Herbert has a big game, and I think they beat the Cowboys. It's one of those things where I, Staley just loses games for them. Like I, 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 I think the line Herbert's is one and a half. It's, it's like a it's an even line. It's going to be a great game. What are we I'm watching saying. next week? Um, Steelers at Rams. Rams are favored by three. The big game, of course, is Dolphins at Eagles. Eagles favored by two. But this is a big test for Miami to come up into Sunday night football, into the hostile crowd. Let's see how this works. And I'm gonna. It'll, this will be a good test for the Dolphins because the Eagle fans are extremely loud. Let's see if they're going to get. You know, I said how great they are because they don't get interfering. You know, offensive procedure penalties. If they can be smooth on offense, this is going to be a good test for the Dolphins. Also, a good test for the Eagles. So no, that's a great game for sure. Yeah, but we got a good one. Hopefully, you can make it to that one. We can get some pictures uh, online at Ira on Sports. Let's go to college football. Start the Big Ten. Indy taking on Michigan, and Michigan looks like they're going to be laying down some smackdowns. This 50, year. They won fifty-two to seven, and JJ McCarthy is phenomenal. Fourteen for seventeen uh, for three touchdowns, and they're just they're just rolling on everyone. I mean, they played, and they're lucky. The Big Ten is terrible. There's three teams, but I just said is like even in games when you watch Michigan play, the first quarter they're like the Dolphins. Like forget it, they're just going to roll down and roll up. But they are, you know, they're set up when they have to play Penn State in three weeks, and then they play Ohio State. That's going to be their entire season to get in the playoffs. Uh, Ohio State played Purdue and totally blew them out, forty-one to seven. And you know this is Marvin Harrison. I got to see Marvin Harrison play everyone because he played great. Because all the, everyone else seemed to be hurt, they were missing their top four running backs. And uh, but Ohio State now under Ryan Day is thirty-three and zero against unranked teams, but uh, just blew out Purdue and just again setting up for next week. And a Penn State played Massachusetts, but I'm not even going to talk about the Penn State Massachusetts game at all because it's ridiculous that Penn State would play like Delaware and Massachusetts this so year. <laughs> but Ohio State is favored by four and a half over Penn State. Uh, James Franklin's record against Ohio State is one and eight, and against Michigan's it's three and six. So for I don't care if Penn State goes ten and two, they have got to beat Michigan Ohio State. Their entire season is it's not ten and two. They want to this they got to win these games. They're one and eight. I mean this is yeah. ridiculous to be a top team year in year out and not be able to beat Michigan Ohio State. They're going to go out Ohio State next week. Michigan in two weeks. That's their entire season. Uh, let's talk about the local teams here. FSU. Taking on Syracuse. Totally blow, blew them out. Kean Coleman, great one. There's so many good wide receivers in the college football this year. I cannot wait for fantasy next year. We drafted all of them. But this is their 12th consecutive win, 30 points in each game. FSU is just tremendous. Jordan Travis was great. And, you know, the line, you know, Syracuse is a good team and some has caused Florida State trouble in the past and they just blew them totally out. Line was 18 and a half and they won, you know, running away with it. Miami sliding out of the uh, top 25 with a loss to UNC and you're falling in love with some players on UNC. I, I'll tell you, th- look, anyone who has anything to do with 
watch Drake May, their quarterback, 17 for 33, 273 yards, four touchdowns. He is so good. He's Justin Herbert. If, if, he, if you took Justin Herbert to play North Carolina football, that's great. Omar and Hampton, the running back, at 25 carries for 200 yards, cannot be tackled. Amazing. And they this they were all yelling and screaming at Tez Walker. Tez Walker played like at Florida, and then played, yeah, he bounced around from the teams, was at Kent State. He tried to transfer, and, and the NCAA said, Tez Walker can't play. He's like the one player that can't play in college football. <laughs> Finally, they said, well, this and that. They let him play. And I now I know why North Carolina is fighting so hard to have him play, because he had six catches, 132 yards, three touchdowns. He looks like DK Metcalf with more speed. He's amazing. This North Carolina team, they could outscore anyone. I'm so impressed to watch them, and they're great. And Miami just, you know, again, they were in the game. They were leading. And then Tyler Van Dyke with the two interceptions, uh, just a mess. Uh, the whole thing was a mess for them. What's up next week for them? Um, well, just the other thing I would say ACC is Pitt beat Louisville. Louisville the previous week was undefeated. They beat Notre Dame. Then Pitt comes and beats them, which is one of the worst two. They were one win, and Duke beat NC State. And next week, the big game is Duke at Florida State. Florida State's favored by 14, but Duke is the type of team that could win that game. And then Clemson is down here at Miami, uh, and Clemson's only favored by two points. That's on Saturday night, so that should be a good game. Moving to the SEC, number one Georgia taking on Vandy. I thought this was going to be 56 nothing. I was I was wrong. I'll tell you, Vanderbilt's playing tough. It was one of those games that's weird. Georgia was up uh, 24-7 at halftime, and, and Vanderbilt just said, we're still in this game. The big story of the game is Carson Beck starting to play well. Their quarterback for Georgia is starting to look like Stetson Bennett, uh, throwing you know, he had almost 260 yards, a touchdown. And Dewan Edwards, the running back, looks like these great Georgia running backs that we've seen year after year, 20 carries, 150 yards. But Brock Bowers, their star tight end, got injured in the game. He He's such a warrior. He was trying to come back in the game, out, whatever, but he had ended up, he's going to be out four to six weeks, but they have so much talent on this team. I don't think it matters so much. They have two weeks there at Florida, but no, Georgia look good. Alabama facing Arkansas. I'm, you know, we thought, you know, two weeks ago last week, maybe Jalen Milrow is kind of coming into it on his own, but they didn't look good in this game. They were up 21-6, and then they stopped playing football. I mean, they were up 21-6 running away at halftime, and then they barely were able to run in this game in terms of hanging in there and winning 24-21. They almost blew this game. But I'll tell you what, Bama was favored by 20. So they only won by by uh, three points, but they're favored by 20. Mm-hmm. But it's like Bama's just doing those things they have to do to win. They're showing to win. They have only one loss, and they have big games against Tennessee and, and LSU coming up. But no, they still got by. But Arkansas has the worst record in the country in one-score games. It's unbelievable. Like, they're in all these one— and Sam Pittman's a great coach, but they're 2-5, and five, and one of the reasons they're 2-5 is they keep losing those one-score games. What happened with uh, LSU-Auburn? Jalen Daniels, Jaden Daniels, you have to watch him play. If he, if they had, if LSU had a defense, you would say this guy could be the Heisman Trophy candidate. Had three touchdowns, 325 yards, 93 yards rushing, um, and Auburn is a mess. But I, I really like you just LSU with excitement in terms of scoring. He's a great player, a fun player to watch. Tennessee taking on Texas A&M, and this is one you're noticing a little bit of a change in what's happening in Tennessee. Last year, Hennon Hooker, it seemed like every game was so exciting. They're they're scoring this year. Uh, Joe Milton had 100 yards passing. <laughs> <laughs> the whole game. If one touch, one interception. It's their defense, and they're running the ball, and they were able, and A&M with the just interceptions with a chance to win the game, weren't able to do it. But exciting game to watch. I mean, I was watching, you know, I had my four screens going. I'm watching all this stuff. But Tennessee now is 5-1. and one. It's a sneaky. There's some of these teams in the SEC. Tennessee's at 5-1, and one, and they're going to play Bama at 6-1. and one. It's going to be a big game next week. Yeah, I think the loss was to Georgia, too. So right. You know, not, you can't win them all. Um, Florida taking on South Carolina. This was the craziest game of 
there was a lot of crazy games weekends. Could have been the craziest because South Carolina had this game totally won. Florida went on a drive. They wanted like to score two touchdowns. They had a fourth and eleven, a fourth and one. South Carolina punted. They then converted a fourth and ten. Like it's unbelievable. They're just running these four. There was like fourth and whatever. We're just gonna go and make get it. And I, I South I feel bad. Spencer Rattler played great, but Graham Mertz was tremendous. Four hundred yards, three touchdowns in Florida. And if you know people, you know I was like Florida's gonna lose this game. They're gonna be terrible. They're five and two. Like they, I could not believe they won this game. What a big win for them to win that game. Um, what, do we, what, what do we have coming up next week? Just really Tennessee at Alabama. Alabama's Should favorite good, by nine. But Alabama's favorite by I'm nine. I'm not going to be game. surprised at all if Tennessee wins this one. So that'll be a good game. Go to the Pac-12. Stanford and Colorado. And this was one, this ended up being a, a huge game. Friday night, I watched the game. Now, a lot of my friends were like, I watched, I turned the game on in the second half. So a lot of my friends turned the game off at 20 nothing. And Saturday Night Live had a funny skit where they had someone playing Deion Sanders, one of their characters, and they're like, he goes, what happened to the game? And he goes, well, it was 20 nothing. I went home and I was sleeping. I woke up and like, we lost the game. And it was complete collapse by Colorado in the second half to lose 46-43 in two overtimes. Um, Elik Amamor, I'm probably saying it wrong, is a wide receiver for uh, Stanford at 13 catches for almost 300 yards and three touchdowns. Total a mess. And even in overtime, Shador Sanders threw a terrible interception, you know, that he just like threw the ball in the end zone, and they, which gave Stanford a, a chance to kick a field goal. Now, Stanford, it was, you know, they were a 20 point underdog. They were two and they were one and four going in the game. They lost to Sacramento State. So, really bad loss for Colorado, who's now, which is four and three, but they have UCLA, Oregon, who's 25th ranked, Oregon State 12th, Arizona, Washington State, and Utah. They're not. There's not an easy game in any no. of those, and they could. They they might not. People said making the. They might. They have to get six games even just to get to the bowls. I don't know, but that was a bad, bad loss for Colorado. One of the uh, turned out to be one of the games of the week. Oregon taking on Washington, and Ira, you're falling in love with Michael Penix Jr. I'm falling in love with Bonix and Michael Penix Jr. <laughs> because it was not just the game of the week. I think it might probably be the game of the year, and they might play again in the in the Pac-12 championship game at the end of the year because they take the two top teams. But Bonix threw for 350 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions, and Michael Penix Jr. 300 yards, four touchdowns. One reception. Both of these quarterbacks throw passes better than most quarterbacks in the NFL. They're unbelievable. Oregon's Tony Franklin running as wide receiver, eight catches, 160 yards. And Roma Donas for Washington had two touchdowns, 130 yards. It was just one of these games where um, Oregon failed on three fourth downs attempts. And I'm not criticizing them because they're trying. It was unbelievable. I mean, Oregon was fourth and 30 uh, with six seconds to go in the first half. And they went for it. They did not try to kick the field goal, unlike you know, the Giants. Like, if it was on purpose, they were going for it. They don't get it. It's 22-16. Penix made it. was 29-18. Washington's leading and with 10 minutes to go in the third. Then Washington had, just didn't do anything the whole that third quarter. And then, then Oregon had a chance to go down. They had fourth and three in the Washington eight. No kick field goal. We're going to just go for a touchdown. And they, they got stopped again. And then Oregon made it 29-26. And our touchdown was 33-29. And then Washington uh, was fourth and six on the Oregon 16. They went on fourth down. They got it. But then they were stopped on fourth down. So Oregon was stopped you know, fourth down a bunch of times. Washington was stopped there, and then Oregon had a chance to. Um, at that point, they they had the they it was still they had the lead in the game, and they they went from six minutes to two minutes. Again, it was fourth and three in the Washington forty-seven. They had a lead, and they decided, you know what, we're just four points. We're just going to go for it because Oregon Washington was out of timeouts. They went for it. They didn't get it, and Washington two quick plays for a touchdown. They're like they're criticizing like why do you score so fast? Score the touchdown <laughs> so fast. Oregon comes down chance 
chance for a field goal, 40 yard field goal, they miss it. But it was like, it looks, this game was at Washington, great atmosphere. But these are two of the best teams. These might be the two best teams in the country that I got to see play. Very exciting game for between Bo Nix and Michael Penix. And now Michael Penix is the is the favorite to win the Heisman Trophy. Uh, what's up next week? Um, one last thing is USC Notre Dame. Terrible loss oh. for USC. Caleb Williams was awful. He had three interceptions in the first half. Five, they had a total of five turnovers. It was 24-6. Notre Dame just <laughs> annihilated them. And uh, this is like Lincoln Riley. Again, this is a coach that everyone, you know, this is the Colin Cowardy. Like Lincoln Riley, like Sean Payton. And all these coaches, they think they're smarter than everyone else. And that's what I like about Mike McDaniel. He doesn't act, as much as he probably is smarter than everyone else, doesn't sort of act like he's smarter. It doesn't say things. And I think Lincoln Riley talks and talks and then they bring the NIL and they have all this money. I mean, Shador Sanders at halftime tweeted out something for selling like the victory, like t-shirts from the game. Like someone from his account decided to send t-shirts out. Caleb Williams is again, they're talking this NIL. Again, USC is too much flash, not enough, you know, just get some offensive and defensive linemen and win these games. Bad loss for them. And next week, Washington State's at Oregon and Utah's at USC. So Ira, let's go to baseball. It's Ira on Sports, Trolley Channel. Have Carlos Boozer on in about three minutes. We kind of said on this show that anything can happen once you get in the baseball playoffs. Nobody thought that the Braves, which I think was the best lineup I've ever seen in my life, would lose to the Phillies. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. There were some thrills in there, but still an overall dominating series for the Phillies. You know, the the, the Phillies won three nothing in the first game, and then you know behind you know Ranger Suarez pitched great, amazing. They beat Spencer Strider, the star for the Rays. The second game, the Braves, you know Harper makes a bad move. He 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 runs, you know, gets caught, you know, double play, awful, and they come back to win that game. And now like, okay, Atlanta's in the series, it's one one. They go up to Philadelphia for game three, lose ten two. I mean, <laughs> Harper at two. Home runs, Castellano two runs, Turner home run, Marsh home run, Nola wins the game. And then you go, remember, this is the best out of five. And then game four, again, Strider versus Suarez, Riley home runs, you know, Castellano home runs, Turner home runs, Castellano home runs again. And it's just, and, and when it was bases loaded with two out, Acuna's up and he, and he strikes, you know, he does strikes out. I mean, that's what Acuna, MVP, everything, two for 14, no RBIs. Olsen, not all bees, they're big star players, one RBI between them. If your star players are not hitting, you're going to lose these games. And I feel like this is what baseball. Oh, is like this was a bad. I mean, you're right. Atlanta was phenomenal. I think even less people thought that the Arizona Diamondbacks. You said that. You predicted. I this. predicted Arizona would win. Um, nobody thought that the Dodgers were, were going to lose this, and it's exactly the same thing that happened with the um, Brave series. Your stars don't hit. You're not going to put. You, you can't you can't advance. And they were even worse because Kershaw got shelled the first game. Bobby Miller got shelled the second game, and Lance Lynn got shelled the third game. So you lose three games. You get shelled both times. Mookie Betts was 0 for 11. I mean, here between Akuna and Mookie Betts, who were like considering like who's uh, Freddie Freeman. They're one and two. Yeah, <laughs> one two three really in the MVP. Yeah, one. Mookie Betts was 0 for 11. Freddie Freeman was one for 10. Jay Martini, JD Martinez, two for 10. And Max Muncy, two for 11. And you're losing to the Diamondbacks, and you had this great year. You remember they had 100 wins. Diamondbacks 84. Braves had 104 wins. Phil's had 90. There's a 14 and 16 win gap, and they just got they got run out of these games. Houston uh, took on Minnesota, and what do you know? Houston back in the ALCS where they've sat for the last eight years. <laughs> yeah, that great win over Minnesota in terms of, yeah, I was nervous about Carlos Correa. He had a couple big games because when he played at Houston, you know how to win, but no, they won, and then and that was, so it was, they won three out of four games. And a lot of people thought Baltimore was good. I, I was convinced Texas was coming out of this entire bracket, and they beat up on Baltimore. It wasn't even close. 3-2 the first game. 11-8 was really, that game was over. I mean, some of these games were just blowouts. And that third game, 7-1, it's like these teams just got out these huge leads and just coasted through. With these relievers that you have, it's, just, it's not like that. So Game one was 2-0 uh, on the back of Justin Verlander, vintage performance. 
Well, on the back, but Montgomery pitched better than Verlander. Yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> but Montgomery, Verlander pitched great. Only gave up two runs for Houston. And then Montgomery had to give up five hits, zero runs. Texas got a run in the second. Tavares had home run. But it was like the bottom of the fourth, Houston had bases loaded. Maldonado struck out. And then, uh, you know, bottom of the eighth, Altuve walked. Bregman flies out. But Altuve got caught in a double play, which was because he didn't step on the bag. And again, I mean, that's, what you know, it, I, wow, some mistakes that Houston made. But Montgomery. Montgomery, you know, this is a pitcher that the Yankees just gave. Remember how they yeah. traded him? And for like, Harrison Bader to the— For uh, Harrison Bader. Yeah. Like, we don't need him. We don't need Jordan Montgomery. You watch Jordan—like, who wouldn't need Jordan Montgomery as your pitcher? He is money, money. Five to four right now going into the bottom of the ninth. Texas leads uh, Houston. So we're going to see if they can close it down here. They're going with John LeClerc tonight after um, we saw Chapman be a little bit up and down so far in this series. We'll keep you posted on this one, but we do have to go to Carlos Boozer unless you have anything else on baseball. No, I just want to say is that Houston's been awful at home. They're the first team in the playoffs to actually have a losing record at home. And if they go down to 0-2 and then they have to go back to Texas and Texas has three games there, it's a huge advantage for the Rangers. Let's go to Carlos Boozer. It's Iron Sports. This is Ira on sports. I'm so excited to have Carlos Boozer, uh, former Duke great, uh, all NBA all-star, and author of the book, Every Shot Counts. Carlos, thanks so much for coming on Ira on sports. Ira, thank you so much for having me, man. Happy to be here. So I'm, I'm a, a, of course, a big Duke fan. I graduated from Duke Law School, and I was texting with uh, Jay Billis this morning, and Jay said, I said, Jay, you got to read this book. He goes, I can't wait to read it. So Jay's excited for this book to come out, and I said, you, you'll, I guaranteed him that he would love the book. Yeah, Jay's a great friend, man, been a good mentor for me in the, in the sport casting world. You know, I work for ACC Network, so me and Jay cross paths quite a bit, been a, been a great advocate um, and helped me a great deal in my career. Post career, I would say. I have read maybe a thousand biographies, autobiographies on athletes. I don't think I've ever seen a book that just where the athlete opens up so much as you did in this book and tells stories. I mean, it was just honest, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything, your opinions, just an amazing, honest uh, book. Thank you very much. Now, I just wanted to be real. You know, I wanted a chance to inspire people, tell people what happens the stories that you may not know about that, that helped shape who I was and my path. And, you know, you think about, uh, like if you ask me what my message is for the book, it would be to tell whether you're the kid, whether you're the parent or the guardian, um, if you have a dream, go for it. You know, it's very difficult to go through life on your own. You don't get to this level by yourself. I was very fortunate to have parents who let me dream. My sisters and my brother, my brother uh, helped me as well. Coaches, teammates, um, you know, I was a kid from Juneau, Alaska who wanted to go to the NBA, right? And there was a lot of roadblocks along the way. So I wanted to tell some of those roadblocks and some of those stories in my book. And one of the major stories was that, I mean, basketball gave you, has given you so much in your life. But when you were six yeah. years old in Washington, D.C., you experienced a, a tragedy you, could, you couldn't even think about in terms of you and your friend playing a game. Yeah, my best friend got shot and killed. I died right in front of me, right in my arms. And uh, I mean, it's hard to, to live with that as an adult, let alone have a childhood trauma in that way. So for me, it was very difficult. Uh, my mom and dad, you know, obviously we moved to Alaska and that opened up new doors and new outcomes. But that was a story that, that I never told, uh, kept it with me. And you know, every time I played the Wizards and went home to D.C., it was always daunting for me. And I've obviously talked to Chris's family quite a bit throughout the years and kept in touch with them. But um, for me, it was time to tell that story and shed some light on it. 
Amazing, amazing. And then growing up in Alaska then must have been very exciting. I mean, we just had Larry Zonka on the show, and Larry Zonka, after he retired from the Dolphins, moved up to Alaska and lived there for many years. So in terms of the fishing and everything, and and also, like you talked about it, you lived in Juneau, so like your away games were flying on planes and everything just to play basketball. No, it's incredible. I mean, honestly, like Alaska is one of the most beautiful parts of our country. There's mountains everywhere, glaciers. We got the ocean right there. So if you do enjoy fishing, there's great fishing. My dad, me and my dad will go fishing quite a bit. I think it's a place everybody should go visit. Now, I'm a, I'm a fan of the summer. I don't know if I will go there in the winter if you don't like being cold because it's the kind of cold that kind of gets to your bones. But the summers are very beautiful, a lot of beautiful hikes and uh, glaciers to go check out. Again, I said the fishing, and if you're into skiing and snowboarding, it's some of the most challenging stuff you could you could you could ride uh, in the winter time. But beautiful place, and for me, it opened up my eyes. I mean, there's so many Native Americans, so I'm learning about different culture, and you know, it's a different way of life up there. I learned how to start a fire, ride a, ride a, uh, a horse, do bow and arrow archery. I did canoeing and. You know, all type of stuff that you you just can't do in Washington, D.C. <laughs> no, you can't do those there. And you go, and I love, I mean, there's so many stories of you with the AAU and basketball. I did like the one where you went to a camp one time, and a coach, uh, an AAU coach came up and says, well, you, you know, we'll help you in college next year. And they thought you were Carlos Boozer Jr., I mean, a junior in high school when you were really only 12 yeah. years old. So I thought that was yeah. funny. No, I mean, that's that's how I got discovered. It was crazy, man. You know, my mom and dad basically used every penny they had to, to help me and my brothers and sisters uh, accomplish our goals. So I'm down at this camp, uh, David and Dana Pump, the Pump Brothers Camp in California. Biggest camp I'd ever been to. There's so many kids there. And I didn't know who all these guys were at the time, but I found out much later. You know, Baron Davis is there and Richard Jefferson is there and Gilbert Arenas is there. And, you know, all these different guys. And they're studs. They can hoop. They're doing moves I've never seen before. And um, I go down there with my mom. I play a game. I play decent, you know, nothing crazy. Had a decent game, and uh, this AAU coach, Darren Montsabora, comes up to me and goes, "Hey, man, I think you had a good game, and you know, we can help you get a, you know, maybe get a scholarship or get looked at by some colleges. I know you're going to be, you know, a senior next year." And I was like, "My mom was like a senior. Nah, he's going into the eighth grade." And he just <laughs> freaked out and was like, "Oh my God, I gotta have this kid." Blah blah blah. And they think I know I'm, I'm in travel basketball, which I didn't even know existed when I'm 12, 13 years old, 14 years old. And uh, that that really was what put me on the map. We started going to tournaments in California and Nevada, Las Vegas, and New York. And all of a sudden, back home, I'm you know, I'm getting letters from colleges, and my mom and dad are talking to coaches on the phone. And and next thing I know, here comes Coach K. So it, it, AAU basketball changed changed the life for a kid from Alaska. And you were sponsored by EA Sports, so that's pretty a fun thing to be sponsored with getting yeah. the, the video games <laughs> when you're there. Absolutely. But, but then you, when recruiting, you just talked about Coach K, and, and because my, none of my listeners, I think Jay Billis might have been one person that would be able to get that, but the listeners don't get a chance to be actually recruited to have Coach K coming up to Alaska, sitting in your room, and you went in such detail in the book about what you know what he said and how he was so relatable to you and certainly your visit to Duke in terms of your why you decided to go to Duke to play basketball. Yeah, I just think it's important. It was such an important element. Like when you, where you decide to spend the next chapter of your life after high school is such a huge decision, you know? And so for me, I'm coming from Alaska where I, you know, Coach K got to come up and see how close knit my family was. You know, I come from a family of love and we're such a close group. So, and he had the same thing with his family. So it was relatable, you know, him being from Chicago. So 
Um, we just hit it off right away. Every every question I had, he answered it. Made me feel comfortable, feeling like going all the way to Durham, North Carolina, was going to be a safe place where I can grow, not only as a basketball player but as a young man. And that's what that's the great thing about really good coaches is that that connection, that friendship, uh, goes beyond the court, beyond the field. And Coach K was very much that way with me. And I just talked to him yesterday as I'm sending him a copy of the book. He also wrote the forward of my book. He's known me since I'm 17 years old, um, more than half my life. So he knows me pretty well. And uh, just one of those guys that did a great job of motivating, challenging, teaching, but also caring, uh, somewhat of a father figure to most of us because we're away from home, from our families and our, and our parents. So does a great job. And I know he's retired, but he's still very real and very prevalent in our lives. Yeah, share with my listeners the first story you said when you came down to Duke and, and a woman called you on the phone. And <laughs> your first response <laughs> was what, to call to Coach K. What was his advice? Yeah, it was weird because I, I know I just got to campus. Like me, me and my boy Jay Will got to campus about a month early before everybody else came in. Just, just so we can start training, get used to the campus, you know, get acclimated as new Blue Devils. And, you know, we're training. I get back to my, my dorm, and I have a message on my phone. And it's like, hey, you know, saw you at the bookstore. Um, we'd love to meet you. You know, let, here's my number. You know, call me. And I'm like, yo, is this like a – am I getting pranked right now? Is this like, <laughs> am I getting punked right now? Like the Ashley Christian show, like, what's going on? So I call coach, and I call my teammates. And I'm like, man, listen, this is college, man. Call her back. <laughs> and next thing I know, that, that was Cece, mother of my kids and, and my first wife and one of my best friends in the world. So – um, it's, it's crazy how how that happened, but yeah, that was my first experience on campus. And what a, what a time at Duke! I mean, playing in Cameron, the the fans. I mean, we see it on TV. I mean, I've been there many. Of course, I went to school there, so I saw it. But just that the passion and the energy that Cameron brings when you're actually on a court there. Oh my God! It's like no one. It's one of those must sees. It's got to be one of those bucket list items if you've never been. Like. Watching, a, especially if you're watching an ACC rival like Carolina or something in Cameron, the energy is through the moon, through the roof. Like, you barely can hear coaches speak. You can barely hear the referees. You can barely hear yourself think. Like, that's how loud it can get at times. And for a kid like me playing in that environment, it was everything a kid could dream of. And you had such a great group of teammates, Jay Williams, Mike Dunleavy Jr., Chris Duhon. And then you go, first year you lost us in, to the Florida, to, in Florida in the Sweet 16. Yep. But that second year, the magical year, 2001, you win the championship. And, and that was a tough year because you got hurt in the middle of the year. And I remember I kept saying, when's Boozer coming back? When's he coming back? And you actually were able to work, rehab, and, and come back for the, for the Final Four. Oh, I mean, I was I was working rehabbing like vigorously trying to get back. We had such a special group, as you mentioned. The guys that uh, that we I was playing with were all NBA guys and all studs and all cared the same way. All cared about winning, put the time in, put the work in, extra work in. Um, we had a special group, and I'm gonna be honest. That year before our freshman year, well, you know, me, Jay, Will, and Dunleavy, our freshman year, losing in the Sweet 16 that motivated us like crazy the next year because we, we, we would always compare, like, listen, we don't want to be the, the, that, that team that lost last year crying in the locker room. <laughs> so everything we did, we went, we asked ourselves, is this at a championship level? Will this get us a championship? And if you remember Shane, Shane Baggy's career, you know, think about it, a loss in the, what was the Elite Eight as a freshman, loss in the championship game as a sophomore, loss in the Sweet 16 with us, which was our freshman year, and then he won it his senior year, which was our sophomore year. So, you know, everything we did was, is it at a championship level? So it motivated us like crazy to get to the final four that year. And 
And don't get me wrong, we had a lot of turbulence in the Final Four. We were down 22 to Maryland in the semifinal game, and somehow we cut that to 11 at halftime and took over the second half to reach Arizona in the championship game. And what a championship game it was, man. Oh, no, just a classic over Gilbert Arena. It's an amazing. And then I loved you said that Coach K had you. In those days, you know, people, you, sometimes there was a debate whether you should stay or go, and you actually came back for your junior year. Coach K had you over at a barbecue and said, let's let's run it back one more time and see if we can try to get back-to-back. Yeah. yeah, it's very few times that you have a team that has, a, has an opportunity to, to go back-to-back. It doesn't happen very often in college basketball. Um, and, and so basically me, Mike, and Jay were like, you know what? Let's run it back, man. Jay was so good. Jay would have been the number one pick no matter when he came out, except for this big guy named Yao Ming that came out of China. <laughs> but that's how good Jay was. And so we tried to come back, run it back. We lost in the Sweet 16, but we took our experiences on to the NBA and um, had a good run in the NBA. Yeah, I mean, I love when you talk about the draft process and the fact that you thought you were going to go a little higher than you did. I know that Jay and Dunleavy went two and three, and you're waiting and waiting and waiting. I didn't go to New York for the draft, but then when you were picked, I think, 34th by the Cavaliers. But that you used that as a motivational. Like, that was like, I'm going to, you know, like the Tom Brady type thing. Like, you, everybody passed on me, and I'm going to show them what, what they missed. Yeah, 100%. Like, I, I, I went from being entitled to being like disappointed to being very grateful. You know, I think I thought I had a great college career. I was named ESPN big man of the year, my junior year, um, like all, all American as well. And to watch all these guys I had dominated, get drafted in front of me, you know, it was, was very humbling to say the least. And then to get drafted 35th overall by the, by the Cavs, I didn't even work out with Cavs. And I, I mean, literally uh, John Lucas just took a chance on me. I didn't even get a chance to work out with him. But I, I know, hopefully he had saw enough games of mine at Duke to, to get a, a sense of what I'm about. But, you know, when you think about it, well, at least when I thought about it later on that night, I'm like, there's probably thousands of guys that put their name in the draft and never hear their name get called. At least I, I'm getting an opportunity here to go show and prove that I belong. And that's and I ran with that feeling and that emotion of I got something to prove. I'm going to make you guys regret not taking me. I ran with that my entire career. And that sort of set you up, though, because your agent, Rob Plinka, said before that you started with the Cavs, he said, come out to L.A. I got to I'm going to have you train with some people. And you ended up starting this relationship you had with Kobe Bryant, training with him in the off seasons. You were on the 2008 Olympic team with him. He defeated you three times in the playoffs and you actually got to play with him <laughs> one year. So what a relationship. You know, he was your opponent. He was your teammate. Um, you trained with him. Talk a little about Kobe Bryant's impact on your life. Ah, big brother, man. I, I miss him to this day. I, I still can't believe he's not with us. You know, he's he's someone I would text and he would write me back, usually at like 2 or 3 in the morning because he couldn't sleep, but um, just gave me great advice all the time. He was a mentor of mine, a tireless worker, tireless perfectionist of his craft, and what greater person for me to, to learn from. He, he was a champion early in his career, obviously late in his career. And, uh, and I'm going to tell you, that 08, it was an 08 Olympic run that we had in Beijing to win the gold medal was, was iconic, man. He was so spectacular, especially in that championship game against Spain. Literally set the tone early by going through his palgasol with a shoulder early and then took the game over in, in the most meaningful moments in the last couple of minutes, hit a huge three to silence the crowd. Like, just an incredible, incredible, incredible human being. And then you saw when he retired from the game, how active he was in promoting WNBA and helping women's basketball and youth basketball with his daughter Gigi and how welcoming he was to the fans at, you know, Disney world and taking more photos and just 
fell into the next chapter of his life just being a dad. And I felt like his best years of just life were ahead of him. And obviously got cut short like everybody else is on that helicopter ride. May they, may they rest in peace and watch over us. But he's been a big brother from day one and um, blessed to have him in my life. I mean, you told that story about the Olympic team where you, where he was there and one day he didn't show up for breakfast and someone said maybe he's sleeping in and it ended up, you found out that he was getting up at like six o'clock every, even though you guys were having two a days, he was getting up at six o'clock and going to the gym early and doing shooting beforehand. This is like totally off season, but just, you know, like practicing, like he's just trying to make the team almost. Yeah. His work, I think was crazy. But actually we were in Vegas and we're coming back from a night out in Vegas, like all of us have done. A time or two. So there's 11, there's 12, there's 12 Olympians on the team. 11 of us were out having a good time in Vegas. We get back to, to, the, to the hotel, the Wynn Hotel, about four or five in the morning. Here comes Kobe walking through the lobby. And we're like, yo, Kobe, where you going? Like, where were you tonight? Like, where are you going? And he's like, he looks around, he looks at us and he goes, I got goals. And he just kept walking. And I was like, okay. So we all get on the elevator and I'm looking around like, oh, damn, I got goals. You got goals. I got goals. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it, it was almost like a pondering effect. Like, damn, I want to, I got goals too. So next thing you know, we're all on Kobe's schedule. We're in the gym at, in the morning, getting weights in. We're going to practice, going through our three hour practice. We're coming back to get shots up. And then we come back later on the night to, to do some more shots. Like it was his work ethic. And if you look at what he accomplished that year, like he won a gold medal, I think he might have won the MVP that year. He got All-Star Game MVP, went to the NBA championship and got a finals MVP. Like, he had one hell of a year. That year was like one for the ages for Kobe, and it was all about his work ethic. I mean, obviously, he was supremely talented, but his work ethic, there was nobody who worked as hard as Kobe. And then you talk about another great superstar that you really intersected with so much of, of the history of the NBA. But in your second season at the Cavaliers, LeBron gets drafted. He's on the team. And you could have, in the book, you could not be more complimentary to her in terms of what a teammate he was, how he walked in and, and was like this. You know, you, you even said in the book, I had to come up to him and say, you got to lead us. You know, here's, you know, don't sit back so much. But it was like you just loved playing with him that one year in Cleveland. He was so talented, man. I, mean, I think at 18, you never really think when you're a pro that an 18-year-old kid out of high school is going to change the whole dynamic of your team or your franchise, but LeBron did. Like, he literally changed everything. <laughs> he came in, and even though he could score whenever he wanted to, all he wanted to do was pass. And it was impressive because it would be on point, on target. The ball would be in your hand before you even knew you were open. Like, it was, it was something I had never played with before. And so I was impressed by that. And he just kept I think it was one of those things where he wanted to, you know, get along with all, everybody to like him kind of thing. But it was no question he was our best player. I'm like, bro, you're our best player. You got to start taking over. And when he did that, he started scoring more, and we became a better team. We were, we literally missed the playoffs by like one, one or two games. Milwaukee was the eighth seed that year with Ray Allen, and then obviously I went on to Utah and they get a chance to further that with him. But yeah, LeBron was LeBron was special. Even even as an 18 year old, you can see the greatness in him. And I loved how you explained in the book about your contract after your second year, because I have a lot of Cavs fans and they still say, well, you should have came back, but you really lay it out there. It's like, you know, how many people are going to give up $36 million when you got a contract and the Cavs weren't willing to even come up to that. And even LeBron told you, take the, take the, uh, the, the Utah or whoever other, other offer. So it seems like you got a little unfairly criticized at the time for leaving the Cavaliers and going to the jazz, but the, you know, it was, it's a huge, it's double the salary. Yeah, I mean, I, trust me, I wanted to stay. We had something awesome. We were like the young gunners. I was <clears throat> like a 20-year-old, and 
Darius Miles was like 21, 22, and DeJuan Wagner was like 19, LeBron's 18. And we had a young group of guys. Our oldest guy was Big Z. So, and he was like 27. So we, I would love, I would love to have been able to stay. Um, but I can't turn down like double the money. And I was even talking to the ownership, like, guys, if you can make a couple of moves, keep me close, I, you know, get it close, I'll stay. But they didn't. And so I moved on to, to different pastures and got a chance to play for Hall of Fame coach and Jerry Sloan and, and play with some great players out in Utah. I mean, those years in Utah where you became an all two-time all-star, you made it to the Western Conference Finals, you played with Darren Williams, of course, great. Uh, just an amazing time there living in Utah and becoming a superstar on the Jazz. Yeah, I mean, I just learned so much. You know, Jerry Sloan had, had uh, coached one of the best players of all time and Carl Malone and obviously John Stockton. But, you know, Carl Malone was one of my mentors and someone I look up to, someone I admired the way he played. And I wanted to be as close to him as I could. Obviously, I fell short, but he's, a, he's not a bad guy to emulate. You know what I mean? And, and Jerry Sloan gave me tons of advice, tons of tutelage. Larry Miller was a terrific owner out there who made it like a family-first kind of environment. Um, so I got a chance to play with Darren Williams and Andre Karolinko and Melvin O'Kerr and Paul Millsap and so many really good players. And we had a really good team. We were just lacking like super size at the rim to protect the rim. But other than that, it, it was so much fun in Utah. I had a great time. Um, kind of figuring things out and becoming my own star in, in, in some regards and, and playing with a great team. And I, I have a lot of friends in Chicago and that the Chicago teams, after you left Utah in 2010 and went to Chicago to the Bulls, play, when played at the Bulls, a lot of people felt, boy, that team was so close. I know you lost to the Heat in the finals, but if Derrick Rose would have stayed healthy, I mean, you might have had a good run of like two or three titles uh, from the Bull, that Bulls team. Yeah, we had to have him a team, man. I mean, D. Rose is special. That kid could do everything you want him to do. You know, he could score, he could jump, he could lead, he could defend. He never got tired. Um, and then we had Joakim Noah, who was like the defensive player of the year, myself and Lou Dang. Um, we had Taj Gibson off the bench. We had Nate Robinson off the bench. We had, it was it was one of those teams that we, we felt like, you know, if we could be healthy, we'd have a chance to win at least one championship, if not a couple. And uh, it, the worst thing happened, our best player got hurt every year. So after he got the MVP, he got hurt like four or five years in a row. So we never got a chance to have our team fully healthy and really go after it. And uh, we fell a little short. But that was probably the most fun I had in the NBA playing for the Chicago Bulls. <laughs> yeah, my friends in Chicago, they love you and they love that team. Um, and the emotional side of your book, I just – just riveting about your children. Uh, Carmani um, was born with the sickle cell trait, and then you had Cameron and Caden right afterwards. And the work you and your wife did at that time to travel to every single doctor, it seemed like, in the world to try to, to save uh, Carmani's life and to and to you know make sure he's healthy, it's just so riveting. Uh, what a story and, and the efforts you put in. And uh, I, I guess I'll, I'll tell the rest of the story is that Carmani is a star baseball player now, and Cameron Cameron and Caden are the two of the top. Yeah, Cameron's the number one high school basketball player in the country, and Caden is right behind him. Is maybe like 10 or 15 in the country. Yeah, thank you so much. Now, the kids are unbelievable, man. I mean, where, where Carmine started at, being born with sickle cell, and, and Cece and I trying to find every doctor and on the planet to try to save him. And we did that. It's crazy how far modern medicine has come, and that's like our modern-day miracle, being able to have that kind of stuff. Um, and then the twins, man, they, they just we use their umbilical cord and their stem cells to help cure him of the sickle cell way back when. 
and now they're all, you know, they think they're grown men, but they're still teenagers. <laughs> you know, Carmani's 17, being recruited as a baseball pitcher, trying to figure out where, where, where college he'll go to next year. The Twins are 16, and they're juniors, and they're figuring out what basketball programs they like and where they want to attend college in a couple of years. And then my daughter is four, and she just paints all over the house and builds Legos everywhere. So it's pretty cool being a parent. But when you think about where it all started with Carmani and Cameron and Caden and where they are now, it's it's pretty awesome. Yeah, we're down here in South Florida broadcasting in, in West Palm Beach, but you said that the doctors, you know, you find out that that Miami had the best, the, the perfect doctor for the situation and also growing up and, you know, living in Miami with the weather was better in terms of waking. I mean, it, it, it was just, the book, the chapter in the book, I had, I reread it twice. I couldn't believe, I was crying almost through the whole chapter about how, you know, it came so much to, you know, I just amazing how you were able to save Carmani's life through that. Yeah, I, I just think I thank God every day that we found every door that needed to be open for him to be okay was open. You know, I think that's just a, a testament to our hard work on trying to find the, the right people, to find the people that can help our family. And then also a, a big shout-out to the Jazz. I mean, Larry Miller and, and Jerry Sloan allowed me to still play in the games and travel back to Miami to be there when I had to be there. And um, they, they, they were family first from day one, so – very, very fortunate, very grateful, and uh, happy, happy we're all uh, still, still, still a close family, and everybody's thriving at this point. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And, and one last thing, you might want to save this for, for people to read in the book, but your story about Prince and your involvement with the, the singer Prince, I mean, that, I'm glad you. that's the type of thing that should be in a book. That's an amazing, amazing story. <laughs> Thank you, man. Yeah, no, Prince, I had a house one time in L.A., and Prince rented it out, and uh, Decided to change a couple things inside the house. You have to get the book to, to read the rest of the story. Again, it's every shot counts. That print story is in the book. <laughs> I can't. That's great. And, and congratulations. I heard you're, you talked in the book about how your business career, you're opening up a fast food chains that you have, your real estate business, and your broadcasting career also. So tremendous. And, and I, I'm telling you, I think this book is going to be super successful. It's so well written, and it's just so honest. I, I just loved reading it. I mean, I felt like, as I said, for the last two days, I felt like I lived your 40 years of your life by, by reading this. I'm so moved, and I'm telling everybody, you've got to read this book, because it's, so, it's such a really great—I mean, I think the fact that you were honest makes the book just so much more just meaningful nah thank you so much i just want to be real and tell people because at the end of the day we go through real stuff i mean i know we're sometimes we're basketball players and we look at athletes and entertainers as like you know untouchable but life hits us hard too just like it hits everybody else and i wanted to tell some of those stories it's every shot counts a memoir of resilience by carlos boozer it's available on amazon barnes and noble everything so go out and get the book i really appreciate it uh carlos for coming on and talking to us for a few minutes Thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. Awesome stuff from an awesome player, Carlos Boozer, here on Ira on Sports. It's final, 5-4, to four, Texas on top of Houston. I couldn't be happier. I hate the Astros. And 2 and they're nothing. Up, and they're up 2 nothing. 2 nothing in that series. We'll get underway uh, with the um, uh, Phillies and Diamondbacks here in just a little bit. What's your plans this weekend? Look, so I'm going to definitely go to the Ohio State-Penn State game on Saturday. This is like, you know, Penn State, it seems like you play two games a year, and this is one of the two. So we'll see you at Ohio State. The fans at Ohio State are the meanest, nastiest fans. I always thought the Philly fans, Eagles fans were mean. I think the Ohio State fans, uh, we'll see what happens this year. Two years ago I was there. I've never seen behavior. It was a night game. This is a 12 o'clock game. See if they're maybe a little more well better behaved <laughs> at this time. And also, congrats to Brooks Kepka, who's won like a zillion dollars. He, he won Live Golf this year, so it's been a successful year for him. And uh, they play this 
week. I might go over there for the Pro-Am. They're, they're down in Doral uh, for some golf. Great stuff. Thanks so much to Carlos Boozer. He's Ira Mike. We'll talk next Monday night. Ira on Sports.